Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of AFK is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. Starting is easy. Servers start at just $5 a month. You can choose your flavor of Linux, then pick a location that's right for you. London, Tokyo, Dallas, anywhere in the world, they've got you covered. Go from having that amazing shower idea to a hosted website in minutes. You can start small and expand as your idea blossoms into a hit. Get the most out of your Linode with great add-ons like backups, block storage, DNS management, built in and professional services to help you migrate sites or even perform more complex sysadmin tasks. Head to linode.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. That's four months free. Once again, linode.com slash changelog. Changelog Media, this is Away From Keyboard, a show exploring the human side of creative work. I'm Tim Smith. Almost eight years ago, Suze Hinton decided to make one of the biggest decisions of her life, leave her home country of Australia. Suze is originally from Melbourne, the capital of Victoria, which was interestingly declared as the second most livable city by CNN in 2018. Suze says that some Australians really downplay the differences between our cultures, but For her, the change was huge. I felt like I was going crazy because I just feel that every tiny little thing I was observing as different just screamed out to me. And so I feel that it's really, really different in the little details. Um, But it's obviously quite a straightforward jump if you're moving from an English-speaking country to another English-speaking country where you're seeing similar brand names. You know, you can generally get similar peanut butter and things like that from the stores. But to me, I just, I'm a very sensitive person and I'm an incredibly observant person. And so it felt like a huge jump for me, given that, you know, I've lived in the same city and I didn't really travel a lot at all. This was my first big overseas trip and it was to move to America, which was very scary. And and you said that before this, you hadn't really traveled all that much. Why is that? I just never really had the craving. Um, Australians are known to be nomadic. Um, I, I don't have like a, a reference link to this, but I think I once heard that there was a stat a while ago that said that 80% of Australians will leave the country every year, you know, whether it's on a holiday or whether they're just like moving somewhere overseas. But most of us leave, even though we're quite isolated and it takes really long flights to get anywhere. Um, all of us are, are really sort of big on travel, big on discovering the world, big on sort of, you know, just like increasing your experiences and worldview and perspective and things like that. And that just wasn't me. I'm a very routine based person. And so travel to me just seemed super disruptive and very expensive. (laughs) Wow. That's, that's very interesting. So what moved you to say yes to move from your home country, especially to one that's so far away? I had an opportunity presented to me And I remember thinking, if I didn't do this, I would be a very silly person. Like, like something (laughs) is presenting itself to me and I don't really want to do it. But I think that 
it would be good for me. I was dating someone at the time. We'd been in a long-term relationship for a few years and he was reached out to by a company in the US who wanted to hire him for a year to work on their product. And it's always been his dream to go to America to, you know, make it big in Silicon Valley and do all that kind of thing. And the job was actually not offered in Silicon Valley, but, you know, he saw it as like a stepping stone. You know, it's like maybe I could then go and work somewhere else and like, you know, make it to California. I remember him calling me and he said, okay, so I have this offer and I think I'm going to take it. And, you know, I I just wanted to know what you wanted to do. Do you want to come with me? Do you want to just like hang out for a year and we'll be long distance and I'll come back and things like that. And that's when I knew I was like, I need to do this. Like, I obviously want to still spend time and like sort of go through that adventure with my boyfriend, but also this would be really good for me for, for growth and things like that. And so, you know, I, I said yes. And then I hung up the phone and then I immediately burst into tears and was like, what am I doing? I'm going to miss Melbourne so, so much. But, you know, that's what you do when something like that knocks on your door. You just you've got to take it. I can imagine, though, that that must be a big deal because I remember moving away from home and feeling so homesick. And yet home was just a three hour plane ride away. But for you, it's like 20 hours in a plane to see family and friends. Right. And and I mean, how does that affect you on a day to day or, or doesn't it? Do you not think about that very often? It definitely comes in waves. Um, I think that knowing how long the flight is away tends to actually sort of, I feel that your brain prepares you for the long game a little bit more that way. Like if you know that it's a lot of effort to go home, then you tend to be, you tend to force yourself to be a little bit more resilient through it. But I've definitely over the years gone through really weird phases of homesickness. You know, the the first year was really exciting and it was a novelty. And four months later, the paperwork was ready to present at the consulate. So I got to go home to do that. Right. So I sort of got another fix. I sort of got to (laughs) get my Melbourne fix and come back in. But I definitely feel the second year for me, I was just angry. I was just angry at America. I was angry at everything. Like I was angry at not being able to have the the food in the way that I wanted it to be. Not, And I was missing the culture of the people the most and things like that. And I went through what I class as, you know, 2012 was the angry bratty Sue's year of homesickness, <laughs> <laughs> where I just felt so out of control. And um, I had just broken up with that boyfriend I'd moved with. And so I had to make that decision. Do I go home or do I stay? And it took me a, a year to own that decision. It's like, no, you, you, you wanted to stay. And so that means that you have to adapt and you have to be really grateful for being able to sort of experience this different life and things like that and not to be bratty about it. But yeah, I definitely took it hard. I guess once I went out and tried to make it by myself for sure. <laughs> These days it's more just, I miss the people culture, but I also am just so, so, so lucky to have reached this point in my career and to be working in America, I cannot even tell you. So I've definitely come out the other side and I, I have much a much better financial situation now too. So I can visit home and I feel more in control of, well, I can afford a plane ticket now and I can afford to sort of stay for a little bit. So if I wanted to, I can go home and that actually solves the problem a lot for me too. What, what made you stay? 
a lot of it was that like so we amicably split up like we're, we're still really really good friends so when we split up it was you know partially relationship stuff but it was also that I knew that he wanted to sort of you know go and leave where we the city we were in he wanted to leave but I loved my job so much and I realized that we went through so much effort and hardship and we went through so many things together just to move here that going home after 11 months just felt like throwing in the towel, if that makes sense. Like I would have had to have right. gotten rid of all the furniture all over again and come back and started again. So part of it was just the fatigue of, well, I've already sort of, you know, the, the sunk cost fallacy um, and, and stubbornly digging in because of that. But the rest of it was, no, I really just want to see what's going to happen if I do actually stay. And, you know, the, I was working at Zappos and that, that place was just such a huge growth experience for me working there that, that I knew, again, that I would be silly not to just try and do the hard thing instead. Coming up, Suze talks to me about the hoops she had to jump through to get her visa, how her parents have played a vital role in where she is now, and how she has dealt with burnout. What's up, AFK listeners? Adam Stachowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. If you've been enjoying Tim's exploration of the human side of creative work, you'll probably love our show, Founders Talk. Founders Talk features stories from founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and the behind the scenes of building and running their company. Here's a preview of Pia Mancini, co-founder and CEO of Open Collective. She's sharing some of the struggles of being a mother and a startup founder. The first few months are absolutely hard, so super challenging, you know? They need your attention, they can't walk, they can't do anything for themselves. And, you know, you're trying to keep doing, but then also, you know, doing your responsibility as a parent. And it's just like, you know, it's just probably the most challenging challenging parts of a parent's life is is those first, you know, six months to nine months of the yeah, child's life. For sure. But it also it also gives you um, an extra energy, like an extra I don't know creativity. I don't know if it's the hormones or what, but it's like you have that. You know, you, you go into a yeah, you go into a different gear. Like yeah. you just you just keep pushing forward. I don't know. There's something that kind of makes you um, yeah, just shift gears into that extra thing, and and you can and you can do it. Also, you. What I found mostly with um, motherhood is I don't have time for BS, essentially, like at all. Like because I don't have, I have very little time to waste or to spare. So you become, at least I became really good at saying no to things and just really cutting, you know, cutting loose things or or, or situations or people that just. Yeah, I didn't just didn't have time. It made me much more focused because the time I have away from my daughter is like I'm doing this, right? Otherwise, I'm with her. So Founders Talk is all about in-depth, one-on-one conversation with founders and makers. If you dig that, learn more and subscribe at changelaw.com/founderstalk. From ChangeLog Media, this is Away from Keyboard. I'm Tim Smith. I moved away from home at 19. It was scary and exciting all at the same time. But the thing I remember the most is feeling like there were so many things I didn't know and many more that I didn't know 
I didn't know, if that makes sense. It quickly became pretty clear to me that I probably wasn't adequately prepared for a move like this. And all I did was move a few states over. Suze felt that on a whole other level. I had moved to the States basically in debt. I didn't have any savings. I think I had $2,000 in the bank, but that was obviously not going towards paying off the debt that I had either, (laughs) just because I wasn't prepared to move to the States, right? And so I wasn't in a financial position where I could. I was working for a startup where sometimes the paychecks were a little sporadic. And so managing your day-to-day expenses becomes quite difficult. And before you know it, sometimes you end up just in debt because it's hard to forecast when you're going to have to pay for things and stuff like that. And so that was really challenging. And so I had to sort of go into further debt just to be able to live for the the four months before I could actually start my job. And the reason why my paperwork took especially long was because I don't have a university degree, which is usually required for the work yeah. visa that I'm on. And so we had to do an audit of my entire career at that point. We had to make up... Oh my goodness. Yeah, I think for every year of university you didn't attend, you have to have three years of experience in the industry. And so we had to go over my entire career thus far, find out what counted towards, you know, what would be like very similar to the role that I would be fulfilling at Zappos and things like that. And I had to contact all of my previous employers and ask them to write a letter saying that, yes, I was here for this long and I had these duties and that I was effective at my job and things like that. And so if I guess if I could go back in time, I might have taken you know, like the option of university more seriously. <laughs> and like <laughs> and which is such a silly thing because like you're not gonna know that when you're 18 years old. And so that's an impossible right. thing that I could really go back and fix. But just moving to America with no money and moving to America without a degree is definitely doing things on the hard setting. And that would be something that would have made my life a lot easier. Other than, you know, the the whole visa thing, do you regret not going to college? It's hard to regret it because a lot of the opportunities that I had immediately after entering the job field were a direct result of the school that I attended. And so they had really good contacts and a lot of companies reach out to TAFE institutions and, you know, they just want to contract somebody and they don't want to pay too much money. And so they just want to pay somebody to, um, to do like small jobs and things like that. And so I got my first two or three opportunities from that school because they called and said, hi, we would like you to recommend your top students. And because I really excelled at that course, because it was like, it was the course of my dreams, really, I was recommended every single time. And so, you know, I got to work in advertising as a flash developer and I got to work at a national gallery, creating the educational content for students who come through the gallery and want to learn about all of the artworks. And like, I really got my start in the industry because of that school. So it's really hard to regret it. But if I'd known that computer science was a discipline that you could study, Oh, I just think that I would have had a really good time because I, I really enjoyed filling in those gaps um, later on in my career when I realized, that, you know, what, what I was missing in my knowledge. Tell me, what, what are your parents like? How do they factor into uh, you working in technology as well as making such a big move? My mom is really cool. So I call her a scientist because it's sort of the easiest description because she's done so many things. So she has a a full chemistry degree um, and she went through that 
similarly to how I went through, you know, being one of the only women who went through it and things like that. And so like she became very battle hardened, you know, in, in the jobs. And so she's been everything from a lab technician in schools, um, you know, to just working in labs as well in the start of her career. And then also, um, working, her last job was in the sort of nuclear and radiation agency, um, that's contracted by the Australian government. And so she was doing things like testing, um, the UV reflection, um, you know, properties of clothing, um, you know, for certifications and things like that. And also testing things like tea for radiation after the Japan, you know, earthquakes, um, a while ago, which had the the nuclear spill and things like that. So she's done a lot in her life. Like she's gone to Antarctica to help calibrate um, some of the UV radiation measuring equipment. But at first she didn't really understand the whole computer thing. She wasn't sure if I could make money doing it. And, you know, I was basically just like on the computer all the time, which is incredibly antisocial. <laughs> and especially if you, if you don't understand like what I'm doing, you know, it can be hard to sort of justify it and things like that. So she didn't understand at first, but like she, she gets it now and she's like a complete wizard on her iPad and on the computer and like it enriches her life every day. And she's actually very, very clever, um, with computers now. And she puts together newsletters for clubs that she's part of and things like that. So when she figured out sort of that, this was something that I was really good at and that it is a viable career, then she was very, very supportive. Whereas my dad worked at, um, one of the newspaper companies in Australia and he was a clerk and he was in, in charge of, um, circulation. So he was managing different, um, news agencies, making sure that they had the right stock and that they, um, just smoothing over issues and things like that. And just coordinating to make sure the distribution worked really well. Um, and he was in that same job for most of his career, um, which, you know, is a bit more rare these days, but, you know, he got the gold watch and all of those kind of things. And so I really admired that he had the resilience to stay at a company for that long and also just build deep relationships. I, I just, that really impresses me because it's just not, not how my career went at all. And it's not something that's very standard these days, at least with the newer generations. Someone who I admire so much is um, John Rezik. He's been at the Khan Academy for, I think, six or seven years now. And and for me, like, I'm very much a Brownfields programmer, I call it. Like, I don't always want to be working on, like, a new thing. I really like tending to the garden of an existing project. And just hearing his stories about the transformation of the tech stack and how you actually get to be around to see that. Like, that makes me think of my dad and my sister watching a company change and grow. And how if you don't stay around, you don't always get to see those lessons and really learn those sort of deep hindsight, you know, patterns of companies and things like that. And my dad was really, really supportive of computers. Like he was the one that brought our first computer to our home. I think it was my uncle's hand-me-down Commodore 64. Um, and this was in the 90s. <laughs> so, you know, the Commodore 64 had had come and gone, but he was like, no, 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 this is going to be great. And any questions that I had, he was just like, oh yeah, if you want to use this, then here are the programming books. And like, let me show you a few basic commands and like literally basic, you know, so basic commands in basic. Um, and yeah. he was always really, really supportive. And then he joked that I took his knowledge, but then I just went and like ran with it and sort of, you know, knew more about computers <laughs> than he did eventually. But yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed holding the flashlight for him while he, you know, swapped out the RAM and upgraded our computer. And, and he was always just like, didn't think it was strange, you know, that a, a girl was interested in it. He was just like, yeah, if you want to know about it, let's talk about it. So I really appreciate that and him encouraging me. 
Yeah. Um, all right. So I want to kind of make a drastic change here. I'd love to talk about some of the struggles that I think, you know, a lot of us face at one point or another, especially on this show. I, I try to talk to people about burnout, about mental health. Um, have you had your bouts with burnout and what have you done to deal with it and try to, um, I don't think overcome is the is the right word because some of these things, they don't really go away, but at least deal with them. I think that last thing you just said was a really good point. You know, it's sort of like accumulating debt. If you can figure out a way to just keep paying the debt down so that it's not actually increasing, if you can just keep coming back to it and sort of like mowing some of it down, then that sort of ends up being my approach to do that for sure. So I think that's a really good way of putting it where sometimes you just never really fully get over it, but you you find ways to actually like manage that. And I've definitely been through several burnout cycles now. My first one wasn't actually until I was living in the States and the company was going through a really major, huge both technical and cultural change. And I was hitting obstacles everywhere. I wasn't feeling supported. Um, I was obviously going through a pretty bad bout of homesickness at the time. I was on one of those waves. And I think part of it was just like, what am I still doing here? Why am I at this place where I just feel so stressed out and like I have too much work to do and I'm staying back till 2 a.m.? You know, there were times like that where I, I told myself, I'm the tech lead on this project. And if work doesn't get done at the end of the day, then it's my job to just stay until it's done. And and so having that with homesickness was my first huge, huge major burnout. And, you know, I did not have the support of the organization I worked for either, which just made it worse and worse and worse. And so that was my first experience. And so I didn't realize what was happening. I just thought that I had all of a sudden become a super useless person. And that despite me working around the clock, things weren't moving. I was dropping the ball on other things. And I basically just didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. And that was really, really difficult because I didn't know what it was because I was just blaming myself the entire time. What was the point where you understood, this is not me, this is not my fault. This is something external that, that I'm feeling and, and therefore it's affecting everything else. Sadly, it took me way too long to realize that. I couldn't quit my job um, because when you do that, you lose your status in America, right? And so I felt fenced in. And I think that definitely added to the burnout because we were working on a green card and I was like, well, I can't walk away from that. And this is all my fault anyway, because I'm a useless programmer and things like that. And so it took basically somebody reaching out to me wanting to hire me at their company and, and saying, I know you don't live in New York, but we would absolutely love to at least interview you. Um, it seems like you're not super happy in your current role just because like I was friends with them. So that they were seeing some sad tweets and things like that. <laughs> and so they were like, we would just absolutely love for you to just come and interview. And so it was one of those opportunity moments again, where I thought, well, you know, I can at least give this a try. I get a free trip to New York at the worst, right? You know, what's, what's the worst that could happen? And so I went through that and it wasn't until like I was thankfully hired, I was able to transfer my visa and move over there. It wasn't until then that when I started working with a new team, when I started seeing my skills being rewarded, when I started um, seeing that I was fully supported in the role and that people would just like 
not questioning things and really eager to work with me, that's when I realized that I was a product of my own environment and that it was only going to get worse and worse and worse. You know what I mean? And so, you know, yeah. I was only going to become a crappy programmer there because I wasn't being set up to succeed. And it took a full year for me to really recover from how stressful the scenario was and the injustice I felt about it as well. And then to build my self-esteem back up too. you know, I was very timid in my new role and I was very defensive at first, you know, with things like code reviews. And it definitely took a year to undo that and really start to flourish again. Yeah. And you see, that's another thing that, that you don't hear very often that it can often not take very long for you to burn out, but the recovery from it is a lot longer. What are some lessons that you feel like you've learned from kind of the, all of these things that we've talked about? I think the biggest thing for me is to find your allies that want you to succeed. Because when you're having those moments where you're like, this is a mistake, or I never should have done this, or I'm screwing this up, or you know, I'm not sure if this situation is because of the other person or not, someone can always ground you and remind you um, and give you that more objective feedback about something. Being able to reach out and ask for help was definitely the thing that I needed to learn the most. I'm a very stubborn person. I like to work independently. I hate asking for help. You know, in this industry, a lot of people see asking for help as like, you know, admitting vulnerability, like I don't know this thing or I made a silly mistake. And so I was a very defensive programmer before I moved um, to the States. And because I had this visa and because I was definitely dropped into the deep end in my first job, it was basically like a survival thing. And so I learned the things that actually help you succeed, you know, uh, asking for help. It's not hindering you from succeeding at all. It's basically saying this is a moment for growth and I'm going to find someone who can actually help me grow. Um, that is the biggest thing that has come out from both moving to um, a new country and just having to start your life over again. You know, you need people to help you with that. But also burnout. Burnout is when you need help the most. And it is one of the hardest scenarios to actually acknowledge that you need that help. That's Sue Sinton. She's Noobcat on Twitter. That's N-O-O-P-K-A-T. AFK is edited and mixed by me, Tim Smith. I want to thank my amazing partner in crime, Kelly Smith, who always sits down and listens to rough cuts of this show with me. Those beats you're hearing right now are from the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Smith Timmy Tim on Twitter. You can find the show at AFK underscore show. Thank you to our sponsor, Linode. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more about them at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Assuming you're loving this show, go rate, review, or recommend it wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to send me a letter or suggest someone for the show, send an email to AFK at Changelog.com. Okay, so the day that I recorded this show with Suze was a crazy day for her. She explains why. 
I got off my bus this morning and I realized that I'd left my phone on the bus. And that phone is like, especially if you're in tech, right? It's your one-time passwords for everything. Uh, it is basically your Google Maps, it's, it's everything. And so of course I immediately panicked and you know memorized the bus number and then I came to work and like basically became that person that expected everyone to drop everything for me to get this phone back. And so I had one person, Burned was like calling the depot to see if we could get the phone. I'm like panic logging in to find my iPhone to find it. And then I have another colleague, Scott, who is very patiently showing me how to create backup methods for stuff. Seth picks me up in his car and we go on a wild goose chase following buses to try and find exactly where they're parked at the depot. We went twice because we forgot the map that I'd memorized and then we had to go back and do it. And I just felt so bad because the whole world stopped while we tried to find my phone and I've never felt so supported and loved by my team. I'm Tim Smith and this is Away From Keyboard. 